welcome to the Tron Church uh, Talking Points podcast. Uh, we're here today with Willie Philip and Edward Lobb to discuss Sunday's sermons. Um, Willie was preaching on Genesis 17 in the morning and Josh Johnson, who's not here, but he was teaching on 1 John chapter 5. Um, I think we're all in agreement that it was um, just refreshingly clear from 1 John um, what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil. Um, and it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Um, Willie, I wonder whether you could um, start us off thinking about um, just how distinct it is to he- to read something and hear something publicly which says there is such a thing as right and wrong and true and false. Yeah, well, it, we were just uh, remarking that in our world today, which is where the big boogie word is binary or non, you know, non, everything's non-binary. So you can't have one or the other. It's got to be, you know, there's got to be something in between or alternatives. But But the gospel is extremely binary. Uh, it's life or death, it's truth or error, um, it's light and darkness. Um, and uh, that was something that's, that's so clear all, th- all, all through uh, 1 John. Um, but particularly there uh, at the end of his letter in verse 19 of chapter 5 where he says, we know that we are from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You're either in the Lord, you are from the Lord, you are under the Lord, you're under his uh, lordship, or if you're not, there's no neutrality. You're under the power of the evil one, um, and that's something that Christians uh, have to realize and come to terms with, because it affects everything really, uh, even our view of the world. We, we in the West, I think, have tended to think, well, you know, we live in a in a secular world, as though somehow or other the the culture that we're in is is neutral. Um, we like to think about, you know, we think in terms of, well, as long as we've all got freedom of speech, freedom of religion, so on, it's a, it's a sort of level playing field. And, you know, we're just one of many actors, one of many religions. As long as we've got our freedom to do that, that that's fine. It, it, it's, it's somehow neutral. That is not what John says here. <laughs> John says that you're either from God, but the whole world lies in, in the power of the evil one. Uh, he talks about antichrists going out into the world. He talks about very real supernatural forces of evil which underlie everything and everyone that is not in God through Christ. And that puts a very different complexion, I think, on the way we should look at the world around us, the way we have to think about what we're dealing with in terms of other people who are not in Christ. Uh, You know, it, it sounds very offensive, doesn't it, to say that actually... Uh, if you are not a believer in Christ, if you're not bowing the knee to Christ and living for him, you are under the power uh, of the evil one. And evangelistically, verse 12 in chapter 5 is something really helpful for Christians to have um, in, in, their, in their reservoir of, of armament. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It all depends on Jesus, whether he is, yeah. whether we have him or not. And I think the ordinary Christian can bring this out and say it to friends. If you have the Son of God, Jesus, you have life. But if you don't have the Son of God, you do not have life because life is only available through him. So there's something here that will help us to be unashamed and forthright in our proclamation of, of the gospel to our friends. And that's one of John's uh, great themes, isn't it? It's all the way through his gospel, uh, eternal life. 
and it's the same here. And he talks here about, about the now and what is yet to be, the fullness of that eternal life. But the great message of his gospel all the way through is that that eternal life has come into the world and can be entered into now, can be begun now. And how does that happen? Well, by knowing, and in the language here, having the Son, uh, having Jesus Christ, but only through having Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. Um, it's the end of John 12, isn't it? Jesus' last public words in, in, in John's gospel. And he cries out. Uh, it's, it's very passionate, isn't it? He cries out with a loud voice. And he says, you know, the Father has given me a commandment. And the commandment of God that has come into the world through Jesus, he says, and, and the commandment is eternal life. Um, God's command is a command that, brings to life mm. um, so it's not just an invitation is it it's much more than it is an invitation but it's much more than that it's a command yeah because and, god is sovereign yeah, yeah yeah and if we respond to the command then we shall know salvation yeah. but if we don't we shan't and and not responding to the command is responding adversely mm. i mean again there's no neutrality there's no third way there's no non-binary solution mm. um you respond to the command of god mm. by buying the knee mm. or you refuse to bow the knee, which is which is to resist, which is to rebel, which is to be actively taking the side of the evil one, uh, which is very striking. And it helps us also with the question about other religions, doesn't it? Yeah. Because John, both in this letter and in his gospel, <clears throat> Jesus, Jesus through John and, and John himself, is making the point that it is only in Christ that there is life. No one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus says. And that's going to help us when we're bombarded with the view that's all around us that every different religion is a different pathway up the same mountain that leads to the same place. Well, that is completely denied here in John's writing. It's only in the Son that has life. And it's only the Son that brings protection. As John puts it in chapter 5, verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God, that's every Christian, does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that is Jesus, protects him and the evil one does not touch him yeah. so to, to belong to christ is to be under his protection and therefore removed from the sphere of power and pain and assault of, of the devil yeah the power of the, the power of sin so it's very definitive that isn't it he does i mean literally it's whoever's born of god does not sin in other words it's that it's the same thing as paul is talking about in romans 6 being being uh, redeemed from the power of sin, from the whole sway of... Dead to uh, sin. Uh, to be dead to sin, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sin and, and, and the evil one. We're saved not just from the, the guilt of our sins, but we're saved from the power of sin and from the overlordship of, of the evil one. But what you said there, Edward, is very important about, about, the, about the explicitness of that life being found only in the Son. Because... Um, because... Often people, the thinking people, as they look at what's going on in the world, and particularly some of, the, some of the, the, the terrible things that have gone over the last few years, there are people waking up. They use that language of, 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 of waking up to the reality. And, and, and often are, what, what they describe is, is waking up to, to an understanding that you can't, you can't really describe uh, or, or do justice to some of what is going on in the world without resorting to the language of evil, indeed, without re resorting to the language of the supernatural. Um, the American feminist writer Naomi Wolf, who's a, a secular Juba background, um, is very openly writing and talking about um, these supernatural realities of good and evil. 
And that is, that is true, of course. And in other words, what they're beginning to see is the whole world does lie in the power of the evil one. But that is not enough. It's not just about a battle between good and evil, between light and darkness. It is, uh, it is about the revelation of the only truth, the only true good, um, and the only true life, which is in the Son, uh, Jesus Christ. He is, so in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. The alternative to that is idolatry. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So that's a really important thing. And um, it's great when we as Christians are having conversations with people who are waking up to the spiritual realm. But that's not enough on its own. It's not just about good and evil. It's about the evil one and the only God who can save us and protect us from him, which is the true God revealed in Jesus Christ and him alone. If you don't have the son, you do not have that life. So we, must, we mustn't be too easily satisfied as Christians mm. with people becoming spiritually aware, mm. uh, taking them only half the way, which is why um, if we are having these conversations, we need to get beyond that and into the Bible, into the scriptures to open up to see what, what, what the revelation actually is about Jesus. Yeah, because it's not enough, is it, that people can recognize that murder or atrocities are evil in themselves because they are still quite of, like, yeah. often not right with God themselves. Yeah. The danger is you wake up and you see the evil out there mm-hmm. um, and you then position yourself on the side of the good with God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, the Christian gospel tells us you haven't begun to wake up to reality and to realize that the evil is in here, mm-hmm. in your heart. <clears throat> and the command is to you uh, to, to repent. Um, I've sometimes heard recently quoting um, people quoting Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the, the the Russian Christian dissident, and he 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 explained this very carefully. He said that you know the 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 line between good and evil uh, is not out there somewhere, uh, not between people or between nations. It, it goes right through every human heart, and that's the truth of the gospel. So um, the evil is in here. <laughs> And, uh, and not just out there, and therefore we are part of the problem. So understanding that the world lies in the power of the evil one means coming to the reality that unless you have repented and have the Son, you also are under the power of the evil one. And of course that's a, that's, that's a more bitter pill, isn't it, to, to yeah. swallow because it's very humbling. I mean, it was um, interesting, Josh was talking about um, chapter 5, 1 John, um, this, the bit about Jesus came by water and blood and this mm. the reality that there's like maybe a denial of like Jesus, the need for Jesus' blood, um, but they're happy to accept the Holy Spirit and that's fine because they're not really got a problem with sin really. But is that, kind of, is that how he was kind of teaching it last night um, or on Sunday? Was that sort of like the issue that... People are happy to have this new life with Jesus, but they don't want to accept the cross and the fact that there needed to be that that death in order to be forgiven. Yes, um, the water speaks of the Holy Spirit. I think Josh took us back into John chapter 7 to make that point. The water speaks of the Spirit, and the Spirit speaks of regeneration and new life. But the gospel has come, there's water and blood, so it's the Holy Spirit bringing new life but it's the blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ that can pay the penalty for our sins. And to become a Christian, you need to accept that. You need to accept that Jesus was willing to go to that length. And if you ask the question, why was he willing to go to such lengths as to offer up himself to death 
it helps us to see how serious I think sin is. If sin were just a light thing, just a few peccadilloes, uh, it could have been perhaps coped with in some other way. But the wages of sin is death and nothing less than death. Mm-hmm. And therefore Jesus had, in, in, in obedience to the will of his Father, to lay down his life and to shed his blood, not just a few drops, but in death, uh, to bring salvation to us. And just to get back to the point about Jesus being central to it all, I think it's remarkable when you consider the writings of John in his Gospel and Letters and, and the book of Revelation and the writings of Paul, and you remember that these apostles lived and wrote only a few decades after Jesus had been taken up to heaven, and yet they'd come to understand so fully and so clearly that true faith, true forgiveness, true reconciliation with God is only achieved through Christ. And as you read through Paul's letters from stem to stern, you find that every blessing of the gospel is only available through Christ. It's the sort of thing you can easily miss as you read Paul's letters, but in almost every phrase, almost whenever he mentions any blessing of the gospel, it is in Christ or through Christ or because of Christ that it's available. So the centrality of Christ to our whole understanding of the gospel is quite different from liberal theology, which will talk about God. God this and God that. But the Bible talks about these blessings being available only through Christ and, and, and without him there's no reconciliation, no forgiveness. I mean, it is very humbling. Mm. I think you were talking about that um, in the morning as well, weren't you, Ali? You know, yeah. Well, I mean, it shouldn't surprise us, should it, that the gospel which Paul says was preached in advance to Abraham is the same gospel as mm. Paul and John uh, proclaimed mm. and Christ himself proclaimed because it is the same gospel. It's the gospel of the sovereign Lord, uh, who is the covenant Lord. So God is the Lord and his covenant of, of blessing, of peace, of salvation with his people um, has implications. And the implication is, well, I, I'm the Lord and you're the servant, not the other way around. <laughs> and, and that is the message. That's the message that's at the heart of the Abraham story. Genesis 15, 16 and 17 all go together. Um, and of course, famously, Genesis 15, God makes that covenant extraordinary promises to Abraham about the future, his offspring, the blessing, and all of that. But that blessing comes God's way. You don't do it your way. His salvation comes his way, not our way. That's the centrality of the Christ that is at the heart of the covenant. But that's always been true. So immediately after chapter 15, with all these wonderful blessings, then we had what we saw the previous week in chapter, chapter 16. Abraham and Sarah decide, well, God's not doing it quick enough. Uh, uh, you know, we need to have this son. He's, he said we're going to have a son. Well, you know, we can, we can do it better than God. We'll, we'll decide how that should all happen. We should, we'll decide how God will bless us. And, and, and God has to say to him, no, it doesn't, it doesn't happen your way. It happens my way. And so after that calamity and, and, and all of that drama in chapter 16, chapter 17 begins, um, I am the Lord Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may give my covenant between me and you. In other words, I'm going to do all these things that I promised to you, Abraham, but we do it my way, not your way. And you need to learn that. Uh, and he is the God who requires fidelity the gospel is a wonderful offer of grace but it is a command of life Mm. jesus said to his followers leave your nets behind leave your father's house come and follow me um that's what it means you you follow you do as i say uh he said it's not people who say lord lord um i'll say to them on the day of judgment i never knew you it's those who hear the word of god and do it 
my sister and mother and brothers are those to hear the word of God and do it. Mm. Um, James talked about, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers. Jesus called people to do much more often than he called them to believe. Uh, although it's just two different ways of saying the same thing. To believe him, to trust him, is to bow the knee before him and to do what he says because he is he is the Lord. And so that is the side of the call of the gospel that, that people find difficult, isn't it? Because it's a call to wonderful life, to know life, to be saved, to know salvation, my way. Yes. <laughs> and of course, we're all like Frank Sinatra. We want to do it our way. Mm. Mm. And that is the constant challenge, isn't it? So there's an almighty turning around and saying, no longer my way, but thine, mm. which is the beginning of the road of, of, of true life and faith, mm. isn't it? Mm. But then there's a daily doing mm. that because... Mm. I wake up every morning and actually want to do it my way again. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you. And so yeah, does everyone who, who loves and trusts the Lord Jesus, which is yeah. why we have to get on our knees and say, Lord, help me today to, to go your way and not mine. And I wonder if there's a particular um, emphasis or need for emphasis on this today, in today's culture, because people are more and more saying, I mean, they've always been saying it since Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, that they don't want to obey the Lord. But they're saying more and more, we don't want to obey anybody now. So the idea that we should sit under anybody's authority is repugnant to our nature. And therefore, we in our churches need to be emphasizing the obedience uh, theme in the Bible more and more. And we need to be detailed about it. We need to be particular about it. I remember, Willie, many years ago, you and I were discussing preaching in the Tron Church. And you said, you said to me, we need to preach the wisdom literature more. And I said to you, why is that, Willie? Because the wisdom literature shows us the way of life, how to live life in obedience to God. And so you know, we've, we've had series on Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Job and, and Lamentate. You know, all, all these things have come up because they help to teach what Paul would describe as training in righteousness in 2 yeah. Timothy. So we need to keep training our churches in righteousness, and that's going to involve a lot of instruction because that's part of our, that's our, our right right response to the covenantal blessings of the Lord. Yeah, it's interesting because I was, I was uh, doing an afternoon on Ecclesiastes with Cornhill students uh, last week and again, just struck me how in the wisdom literature, especially there Ecclesiastes, but obviously in the others as well, Proverbs and so on, but what, what, what that does is it observes and expounds the world outside, doesn't it? It says, look at the world, this is what you see. And this is why it's all going wrong. And and this is this is so we get the critique of God. So in the law of Moses, we get the commands of God. This is how to live. But in the wisdom literature, we're getting a a a, a nuanced look at saying, well, why is this the right way to go? Because if you look at the world and you look at what goes on from the heart of human beings, you can see all the complications that flow from that. And so it it on the one hand puts the dark back cloth of the reality of the world. And then that shows up, doesn't it? The, the, the righteousness of God in his word and his ways and his commands for life. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that, that probably is true. But, but what, what that's saying is that Christians need to, need to learn to be shrewd observers of the world round about. We need to look at our culture. We need to listen to what the opinion formers are saying, what the politicians are saying, what the, the celebrities are saying, what, what, people are, you know, what the zeitgeist is out there about, oh, this is, this is the way to live. And the Bible teaches us to be skeptical of absolutely everything. 
um, and to look at it all and say, well, hang on, let, let's, let's bring this alongside the plumb line of God's word. Uh, let's look at where it actually goes. Let's look at, you know, how, how is it working out uh, doing things our way? And of course, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, well, this is what I've observed. Uh, it's futile. It's, it's people are living in vain. It's meaningless. Uh, you can pursue this, that, and the next thing. Well, it gets you nowhere. Um, how do you actually learn to have a fulsome life, a, a satisfied life, uh, a life enjoying the good things that God has given us? Well, that comes from God. It comes from seeing the whole of this life in the perspective of, uh, of eternity. Um, and so, yeah, we need, to be, we need to be constantly reorienting our own minds, but also others, because that, that's, that's why people who come into church and hear God's word being opened up and expounded, what they find is that they're being forced to then critique their own thinking. And we need to be applying God's word, not just to Christians, not just to us within the Christian church, but showing how it applies to the world outside. I mean, read through the prophets. I've just been reading a little bit this morning in, in, in Ezekiel. And, you know, the prophets of the Old Testament are constantly critiquing not only God's people, Israel, but the whole world, all the nations round about, uh, showing up where they're wrong and showing up the criteria by which they will be judged. And so... The Old Testament prophet, or indeed the New Testament prophet, which is all God's people who have, our, have, have his revelation to give to the world, we have a word not just for the, for the inside the church, but a word for the world. Um, and I think we've got to consciously help our people to see that, that if you have the truth of God, you have a more expert commentary on world affairs than the experts that are brought into the, the studios of our televisions. We bring in Mr. Expert on foreign affairs and he'll tell us, you know, interpret this to us. That's what we get in the news now, isn't it? You get two lines of this is what's happened and then the expert comes and tells us what it all means. Well, if you understand the, the word of God and if you understand the purpose of God, the plan and the future of God and understand his law, you are more of an expert than any of these people. That's the truth. I mean, yes, a lot of these guys who I've got like books out, you know, they're... They can see a lot, but they don't see the supernatural, do they? You know, like Douglas Murray and other guys like that. You know, yes. that's why Jordan Peterson, that's why people like listening to them, because they can put their finger on certain things which are not right about the world and that men need to change and women need to change. And, you know, they're not living life as it should be. But they that's why people aren't really coming to new life when they come to know Jordan Peterson or Douglas Murray, people like that, because they don't know Christ, they don't offer Christ. They can diagnose the problem, but they can't they don't know the prescription yeah. for, for fullness of life. Or they might be able to they might be able to tinker with a few of the symptoms. Yeah, um, yeah I think that that's why um, you know, Christian thinkers who have the same analytical skills and, and knowledge but are able to take things further is so important. So um, uh, I've mentioned before um, Carl Truman's books on this, and he's he's dealing. And the Cornhill students are going to be reading uh, his book *Strange New World*, which I, I really recommend because um, he's talking about that whole what you were really what you were describing earlier, Edward, the, the expressive self. Mm. That has you know that has become the idol of our age, isn't it? It's and he traces the development of all of that through the romantics and the Marxist thinkers and all the rest of it. But, you know, that is at the heart of this whole, this whole focus on identity today. It is me. It's me expressing myself. Um, but, but Carl Truman is able to, to put his finger on all of these things. But 
because he's a believer, because he understands the scriptures, he's able to begin to start saying, well, these are the answers. And, uh, and he can take you a lot further than Jordan Peterson or, or Douglas Murray. But every Christian has got the answers. We've got it in the scriptures. But as my father often used to say, the scriptures will not yield their treasures to chance inquiry. You were you were chatting recently, Edward, weren't you, to somebody who was who was um, saying that you know um, uh, Christians or young people in particular can't possibly listen to, you know, how can how can you have in depth Bible teaching and long sermons because people are only able to listen for five minutes or something? Well, that's yes, just nonsense. That, that's right. I was talking to a man who he, he was a Christian. He was sincere. He was he was pleasant, but as he looked at our church and he just heard a rather long and demanding sermon. And he said, how can Christians learn like this? And I, I didn't give an inch to him. I said, this is what we need in our churches. We need solid teaching. And if necessary, that needs to be quite lengthy teaching. And we mustn't be ashamed of that or embarrassed. But he said, people cannot learn that way. So I said to him, we were surrounded by two or 300 people in church, many of them under the age of 25. So I said to him, look around. Mm. These people, uh, many of them, only 20 or, 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 or thereabouts, are people who've already got quite a considerable grounding in the Christian faith, but it's only happened through serious, protracted teaching. And that's what the churches need if we're going to produce Christians who've got the ability to survive. It was Jim Packer, I think, years ago, who used to say, sermonettes produce Christianettes. In other words, yeah. if our preaching is dumbed right down, then our actual ability to live the Christian life is going to be very much diminished. So we mustn't be ashamed about teaching the truth at some length. And it's the same with our Cornhill course and the training of, of pastors. It's got to be considerable. It can't be just soundbite theology and soundbite training. We've got to go into things. But, and that is precisely what people are hungry for. Um, and that is why, and, 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 and very often I suspect, it is because that is not to be found within the church that people are tuning in mm -hmm. to Jordan Peterson. And they're listening to two hours of his podcast yeah, every Joe week. Rogan. They're listening to Joe Rogan, which is three hours. They're listening to all sorts of things for hours and hours We're and hours. We're only 25 minutes, so it's okay. <laughs> yes, we're just podcastettes. We're producing, yeah. I don't know what we <laughs> produce, but uh, people are looking for, for, for reality and for meat. If they mm. will not find that in the church, they will seek it elsewhere. Mm. Never forget when I was still living in Aberdeen and I was a, a, an assistant minister, and one day the doorbell rang and I went to the door and it was a Jehovah's Witness. And we got into a discussion and I said, well, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a, church, a church minister. And uh, she said, oh, well, uh, the reason I went to the Jehovah's Witnesses was because I was really hungry to learn about the Bible. But I heard really nothing about the Bible in my church. But a friend of mine said, come to us in the Jehovah's Witnesses because we have, we have serious study of the Bible. And that's what I found. And I thought, that is a, that is a tragedy, isn't it? Mm, that is a tragedy. Is, is. Imagine standing before the Lord on Judgment Day and he points to all of these people and said, these people came to your church seeking the truth that I commanded you to proclaim and you gave them nothing. And so they went to those who taught lies and, mm. and falsehood. Mm. What do you say to that? That's a terrible thing, isn't mm, it? Mm, that, is, that unfortunately will be the verdict on most of the church in our country on the day of judgment. So we've got to be very serious, haven't we, Willie? We've got to keep on being serious and, Absolutely. and pushing the truth home. Yeah, I guess that comes back to what you were saying, Edward, about just how important it is to be um, meeting together, to be taught the word. I thought what you were saying about um, Abram and Sarah uh, getting new names and their true identity yeah. in 
in Christ, basically, you know, in the covenant um, with the Lord. And just, and maybe some people might sort of uh, find that quite like awful, like, gosh, he's given them new names, he's changing their, because it's such a personal thing, isn't it? Your name and Edward probably doesn't like being called Eddie and, you know, all that sort of thing. <laughs> it's it, it matters to people, doesn't it? But the fact that you said something along the lines of um, actually their real, like their true and and proper identity was with those new names because they belong to the Lord and and actually just I guess it's the the beauty of you know living the way that God intended you to do as mm. His you know and just actually it's just so refreshing hearing that actually true your true life is is lived and the you know mm. the one that God intended you to live is with Him and that I think comes out in the names that He gives them because they're expansions and 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 uh, you know He's making them more than they were before not less. They're not different in that sense. And that's the reality. We, we find our truest selves when we surrender ourselves. I, 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 think, it was last, I think it was on Sunday evening and in the, in the offering piece was, was playing the, the tune of that lovely hymn by George Matheson, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Mm. And that's the heart of the Christian gospel, is that we find freedom and liberty and our true potential, our true self, as we bow to Christ, as we as we as we gladly surrender, and become a captive uh, to Him, because um, to serve Him is to find perfect freedom. Is that lovely line in a, in a prayer by Augustine, which is uh, find its way into one of those collects in morning prayer in the in the in the Book of Common Prayer? God, whose service is perfect freedom? That's the truth of it. So to find the most full me is to die to myself and to find the fullest me, which is the me in Christ. It's no longer I who lives, says Paul, mm. but Christ who lives in me. Mm. And that is the, that's the new me. That's the true me. That's, uh, uh, and for everyone who's in Christ. And that's, that's the joy of the gospel, isn't it? It's a command to die <laughs> that you may live. Mm. Mm. Exactly. And it's, it's wonderful. Think also of the commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To become a Christian is to take his name yeah. rather as a young woman takes the name of her husband when she marries him. Yeah. She gets a new identity and a new name. And in the same way, when we become Christians, we have the name of Christ, as it were, engraved upon us. And that's our identity from now on. If I were to seek my identity myself, if I were to look into my own heart to discover the wonderful things there, I would find that what comes out of the heart of man is what defiles a man, as Jesus puts it. I don't want to seek my identity in that. Everything in our culture is, no, no, you do you, and, you know, it's just so countercultural now more than ever in our lifetime anyway about dying, you know, you know, sacrifice, all that sort of stuff. People are just not willing to do it unless it's for their own benefit instead of for the sake of, you know, God and his glory and yeah and the command to Abraham is that God chose Abraham that he would teach his own household mm. the way of the Lord uh, and therefore the call upon his life was not only for him but a responsibility for others for his household and that was the point that's made by you know the, uh, the, the even the foreigners who are brought into his household come within the orbit of that grace and actually that's what we're going to see this next week because in chapters 15 to 17 we've been talking about the beginning the constitution of the christian church the true household of god the true israel of god um but that the question then is well what's that really for 
Well, it, the promise to Abraham was not just for him, was it? It was that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And what you immediately see then, beginning in chapter 18 of Genesis, is the beginning of real Christian mission. What's the first thing we read about after Abraham is circumcised, after, after he, his household has become the household of faith? Well, what do we find? We find him interceding for Sodom, the pagan city around him, pleading with the Lord to save. Uh, that is the purpose of God's church. Um, and so, yes, we've got that responsibility, not just for ourselves, but for others, for others in the church, but for others outside the church. And, um, and, and the gospel is a command for us to go on commanding others. So that's what we're going to see more of um, uh, in, uh, in Genesis 18 and following. We'll be on, we're switching to the evening uh, this coming Sunday for that. And I think Paul is going to be uh, starting on Sunday morning uh, and he's taking us back to uh, more of the Apostle John, but uh, John's vision in, in the Revelation. So we start that on Sunday morning. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us and we will see you next week. Yeah.